All right. Well, good morning again, everybody. Um, it is, it is going to be great to uh, get to work, continue worship this morning by opening up God's Word together. We're going to be uh, in Hebrews chapter 5 today. Thank you very much. Hebrews chapter 5. So uh, we're going to be reading out of the ESV. So if you have an electronic copy, you can flip over that. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you uh, this morning, you can look down into the uh, racks underneath the chairs in front of you and grab one of those Bibles out. And we'll be on page 1003. Um, and we love to say that if we don't, uh, if you don't have a Bible that you can call your very own, um, please feel free to take that one as our gift to you. Uh, we know that you will be blessed um, with the time that you spend reading it. Well, we are going to be continuing, like I said, our, our sermon series through the book of Hebrews. Uh, we've been looking at, as the graphic illustrates, how Jesus is greater than. That is one of the main themes that is present throughout the entire book, is constantly pre being presented that Jesus is better than anything else that they've known before. So you may have heard it done like this, he's better than that. You may be used to it going this way, he can do it better than that. And so constantly, time and time again, uh, the entire theme is that Jesus is far superior than anything else that had been known up until this far. Now, we've noted and talked about it a little bit before, but since we had a week off uh, last week because of the VBS uh, celebration, which I encourage you, if you didn't get a chance to uh, come to that and hear it, go back uh, onto our archives it's online as soon as they become available and, and listen to that sermon. Chris did a powerful job um, ex expositing God's word for us. Uh, but since we took a break off for VBS and we're jumping back in on it, what I wanted to do is spend kind of the beginning as a little bit of a refresher course. Where do we stand as of now in the book of Hebrews? Because again, it's important for us not just to remember the theme, but to remember the purpose. Because we know, although we don't know the author of Hebrews, we do know likely it is a, it is a male and likely it is a prominent Jew. And what we do know is very clear is that he's, he has one purpose in mind, and that is to, uh, to write to the converted Jewish Christians of the time and encourage them not to go back to their Jewish ways, to not forget the confession of Christ and move back into their Jewish faith. Um, but there's the constant reminder of how uh, all of Judaism up until that point was pointing towards Christ as the fulfillment. Um, and now that they've acknowledged that, uh, may they never forget that and look back for completion in something that was inherently meant to be incomplete. Uh, I included a quote on the screens uh, from Robert Saucy who talks about this theme throughout, and I think it was a very good one to remind us of. Uh, it says, the, he writes, the, writer, uh, the writer's goal was to establish the superiority of the gospel in contrast to all that went before. The primary evidence of the supremacy of Christianity is presented in its finality. Coming to Christ means final access to God without barriers. Now, again, the constant thing that we're going to be doing throughout this whole study, because it's a book primarily written to Jews, and since a lot of us don't necessarily aren't national Jews, certainly, and don't have a lot of probably Jewish heritage, we're more than relating on the Gentile sides, a lot of our our time that we spend going through this book is going to be um, finding how the context, by looking at the context, we can bridge the gap and look at an, appro uh, an appropriate interpretation for us today. And so what is written primarily to the Jews doesn't mean that then for any Gentile we can discredit it, but rather we need to bridge that gap. And so we got to jump into this mindset. And this concept about having access to God without any barrier would be monumental to the Jewish faith. That is, the, that is the beauty of Christ engaging in the story of Israel, is that though man created a barrier, he himself came in to put right 
that gap in that relationship, but even in doing so, the entire time he wanted to point to the fact that it is not man's merit alone, and in fact, the whole Levitical law is not to point to how man can do these things so that he can gain God's favor, but rather that he can have access pointing towards a way that, they, that man can now commune with God in hopeful expectation that one day there'll be no barriers and we can communicate with God without any barriers in the process. And this is the fulfillment of what Christ brings in. So something that, again, to the original audience would be monumental for them to think about. And how does the author of Hebrews go about trying to convince then this Hebrew audience uh, that Christ can complete this in finality, that these barriers can be removed? Well, he does so by jumping back and forth, in and out of, uh, he goes into a section of exposition, and then he goes into a section of exhortation. So he goes in where he kind of explains his argument. And so we have whole big sections where it's just kind of like the thought process where he's explaining things. And then he always tailors those in by moving over and trying to encourage or claim out for them to do something, right? We, again, if we were reminding ourselves, uh, if we looked back at to chapter one, uh, the entire chapter, nothing in the first chapter has any exhortation to call to do something. Rather, it's just an explanation. There's many messengers that have come before Many messengers that God had used to relate to him, but Christ is the best messenger. So it's not even until chapter two does he have his first exhortation. That was to listen to Jesus. So if he's the best messenger, we should probably listen to what he has to say. Then the end of chapter two uh, is entirely focused on how um, God works for our salvation and that Jesus is the only one, or at least the chosen one, to enact and bring about the power of that salvation. So then the exhortation comes to consider Jesus. Then we move into chapter four, and this is what Chris two weeks ago kind of finished on, it's because now he's bringing up another imagery, and that's the imagery of the high priest. And really you can see, if we're actually, our section up on our chart this morning, looking at the entirety of chapter five, falls actually on the tail end of the exposition that's already started in four, and actually only starts the exhortation uh, in chapter six that actually has a lot to continue. So we're actually just kind of piecemealing a little bit out in the middle. And so it's going to be helpful probably for us to back up some to understand where we are. And we know that we're going to be concluding knowing that there's some more to come. And so that kind of at least should help in our framework of our passage. So God is, God, or Jesus is introduced as our ultimate high priest. So how do we know that? And what do we do with the knowledge of that? That's exhortation and exposition. Exposition, what do we know the knowledge? And what do we do with that? So with that in mind, let us, uh, let us read all together Hebrews chapter 5. Uh, I'm going to invite you to stand so that we can again align our hearts both uh, spiritually but then physically and more so this morning as we are going to read uh, Hebrews chapter 5 all together. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. But because of, it, of this, he is obliged to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for the sins of the, or just as he does for those of his people. And no one can take this honor for himself, but only when God, uh, only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he said also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source eternal, the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray together. Lord, may your word that we have read together today be planted deeply in our minds and in our hearts. Help us not walk away from it and forget it, but to meditate on it and obey it. May our lives, Father, with your help, reflect the truth that we proclaim. Amen. I'm going to have a seat. All right, I told you that I wanted to kind of, in order for probably, uh, the way for us to probably get the most, the most like overview, arching view of chapter five is probably to start back in the arguments that are presented in chapter four. Because again, I think it's more importantly to, to conclude with his last encouragement and move how he sets up this new argument. Um, because I think actually, if you look at the last paragraph of four, you can actually pull out of that some key concepts. And that's what we're gonna try to do this morning together, is pulling out some key concepts that applies entirely over the message of chapter five. All of his argument to come in the remainder of chapter five, I think is summarized in the first couple of verses. So let's start with the conclusion of our last exhortation. Um, by looking down in uh, chapter 4, verse 14, in which it says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. All right? This is the command. This is the imperative here. Let us hold fast to our confession. This would make sense for the Jewish audience who is struggling with what do they do with their confession of Christ? Do they give it up and go back to the Jewish, the Jewish ways? This is the drifting away that we talked about of chapter two. This is holding on to the, let us consider the assuredness of our salvation that we've talked about previously. Let us hold fast to the confession that we've made. This would make sense for that Jewish audience, but it also makes sense for all of us. Anybody who's made a confession of Christ, this would be an appropriate imperative command. Let us hold fast to that confession. Let us remember the truth and behave rightly according to the truth. I think that's the, the last prayer. So then he moves into his next section of exhortation. And there's a monumental shift that's about to happen here um, because this next exhortation that he's, that he's building up towards um, is actually gonna be one for the first time that's gonna come with a personal claim of negativity. It's gonna be a specific call to his original audience. Um, and so he's building this up in a little bit different way, this next exposition um, or explanation of his argument. So let's look down in, in, uh, in verse 15 of chapter four. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted, as we are, yet without sin. So it begs the question, what do we learn about Christ from this? What do we know about Christ in this verse? How, how is he being compared to a high priest and what do we learn from this comparison? I'd say for the point, first point of it is we know that Christ is compassionate. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses for he himself knew weakness. I think we have a high priest who is compassionate. 
One that probably could have standed off purely as God and fixed this problem entirely on his own, but instead chose to come down in the presence of man, God and man, simultaneously to share in humanity's weakness, to take on our frailty so that he can be compassionate, so that we can know and relate, not to the God behind the curtain who says, don't look at me, y'all are over there, I'm over here, but to one who's come down in our midst and says, I hurt with you. I feel you. Your weaknesses, I understand. Because not only did I create them, but I myself walked in them and lived in them, not without any limitation, but in a way to extend compassion authentically to us. I think we know that the first thing we learn about Christ here is that he is a compassionate high priest. Well, what's the second thing that we learn from this verse? It's in the tail end of it, is that not only is he a compassionate high priest, but he's also a capable one. He is a capable high priest. He has, his capacity is better than ours. Because not only did he experience our weakness, not only did he walk and face any trials and temptations that are known to man, not only did he face those, he then conquered them. He wasn't subdued by them. So it says at the tail end of that verse, in every respect being tempted as we are, yet without what? Sin. So he's a compassionate God who took on all of our weakness. It is a capable God where we are not capable. We can relate to him in our weakness because he's compassionate, but we cannot relate to him in his capacity because he is better than we are. Jesus greater than. So that's what we learn about Christ in this verse, that he is a compassionate high priest and that he is a capable high priest. So what is our response to this knowledge? Again, this is what, G, what uh, Chris has been talking about the past couple of weeks. He's mentioned it several times. Um, uh, this is the process of moving from gnosis to um, fetus, the idea that we have uh, just a knowledge that we can ascribe to, but that's different. And there's different when we just ascribe to that knowledge, and there's difference from us putting faith in that knowledge, right? All of you, if I was just standing up here and said, yeah, I know that chair is going to hold me up, it doesn't mean the same thing until I actually sit in that chair, so if we knew this about Christ, if we knew that he is compassionate, if we knew that he was capable, what is the sitting in the chair? What do we do with this? We'll look down in verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. This is the first point that I think we can learn from it is we can approach the throne of grace confidently. Because we have a compassionate and a capable high priest, we can go to that high priest confidently. Why? I mean, because he's capable. He can do what we can't and remain pure. This is a thing that we apply to our lives all the time. Of course, it would be natural to apply it in our spiritual condition as well, right? Because if you're sick and you don't know what to do, who do you go to? The doctor, right? Why? Because you're not capable, so you're going to seek out the one who is capable. And then when he demonstrates his capacity, how capable he is, then it instills in us confidence, right? Let me put it this way. How many of y'all wear corrective lenses, glasses, contacts, anything like that? How many of y'all who, who do wear that? How many of y'all have considered LASIK surgery to get that fixed? Awesome. Hey, good news. Everybody who has their hand up, good news. So last night I was watching some YouTube videos. 
and I saw all these laser, and it was just like on grapes. So I've been practicing. This is super sharp, and I've been practicing on that. So good news. One time offer for everybody who said that they considered LASIK. Here's your time. You just, this will no charge, free of charge. Come on up front, and we'll take care of things right here, right now. <laughs> Where's my takers? Nobody, right? Why aren't you going to come forward? You don't have confidence in me. Why do you not have confidence in me? It's okay. Make fun of the preacher here. Because I'm not capable, right? I'm not capable to do that. Thus, you have no confidence in me. Well, this is the exact reversal of what is expressed here with Jesus being our high priest, is that because he is capable, we can have, to the utmost extent, confidence in going to him as the mediator between us and God. He is capable, thus we have confidence. This is our first response, is that we should respond to the throne of grace with confidence. The second response I think we can glean from this is with the truth of him being a compassionate and capable one, not only can we come confidently, but we can come consistently or continually. Meaning that there's no inhibition to come to him. Because look down, look at when are we invited to come? Find grace to help in the time of what? Need. So when do we go? When can we go? Well, whenever we need. Well, when do you need? I don't know, when you need. Is needing now? Yes. Then go. Is it tomorrow? Probably. Then go. Will it be in a year from now? Yes, so go. We can go continually to that throne. This was very different and radical again because this is the comparison of Jesus being a better high priest because the other high priest, man's high priest, the institution that God put down for a mediator to be chosen among by himself, to be chosen among men, to stand as the person in between, was on a not continual basis. It was a limited, it was very rigorous. There was sacrifices that needed to be done. There was a process that needed to go through. Even through the greatest um, act or sacrament that the high priest did on the Day of Atonement, that even was limited. Had a very specific time of when it could happen. Had a very specific process. And that was when the, the priest had to make sacrifice for his sins and for the sins of everybody. And that only came around on a yearly basis. But this is different. That system was incomplete. This is complete. That one was not continual. This one is continual. So we have a compassionate Christ who is capable and we can respond to him confidently and consistently. This right here in those two verses I think encapsulates the entirety of chapter five, at least with the exposition part, his argument. The rest of the argument here is just a rehashing of this. And it's a little bit interesting, a little bit fumbled, and it has a lot of repetition. And so I'm going to try to stay in the same vein and repeat uh, a lot of these same reminders. Because if we can remember these themes, then we can have the best bird's eye view of the rest of the argument. Um, because again, after all, uh, this is very, very typical of a Jewish writing of the time. Uh, they believed fervently in repetition. Repetition was the key to retention. Repetition was the key to retention. Repetition was the key to Retention, right? Repetition, key to retention. And so he, all he's going to do in this next section, section, when we pick up in chapter five, is he's just going to repeat this idea about a compassionate and capable high priest, one we can respond to confidently and continually. Uh, so let's look down at how he first introduces the, the incomplete system, the high priest system filled by man. Um, so look down in verse 
5, or verse 1 of chapter 5, excuse me. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for their sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and with the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he has done for those of his people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So again, I think what's helpful, what the author's trying to do is he's trying to point us back to the insufficiencies of man in the function of high priest as the mediator between God and all of his chosen people. And there's a couple key things that come out about this role. One is the beauty of how God uses man's weakness to bring about his virtue, right? Because what is one of the characteristics of the high priest in the, in the institution that is performed by a man? It is that he has to offer gifts to God on behalf of all the people, but he himself is constantly reminded by his weakness because before he can do that, he must offer those same sacrifices for himself. It isn't that he has attained something so then he can now give it all. It's that he is desperate for God to do this in his own life and the same way all the people are desperate for him. And so we see that in this weakness and the fragility of man in this institution, we see virtue, God using that as the extent of compassion. Because again, we have a high priest who can relate to us. Here, man's high priest could still relate to us because he himself was broken. So we again have this picture of this compassion being extended. But the difference is though the, the, the man's high priest was compassionate, he was not capable it wasn't his to wield around. Look back at verse four. No one takes this honor for himself, but only call, when called by God, just as Aaron was. The high priest could, could relate compassionately, but it was still that same desperation that he and along with all the people around him went before God. It wasn't the confidence, nor was there the continuality. It was in a limited way. So that system limited why? So that continue access could happen with God, pointing towards faith in one to make that process complete, to fulfill it in finality. So then who fulfills that for us? Jesus does. First four verses, all focused in on how man did it, this incomplete system. Five through 10 is how Jesus does it in the complete system. So let's look at that, verse five. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As it says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, being designated by a God, designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Mouthful. The rest of the argument. And it's actually kind of meant to be a mouthful. I actually probably slowed it down too much. Because there's something that's kind of cool that's going on here in the original language that we kind of miss out on. 
Um, is that those first four verses are a bunch of sentences to explain how man was insufficient. And it's almost like the author of Hebrews gets so excited to explain how Christ is sufficient. Actually, verses five through 10 is one sentence in Greek. It's like this continually run on sentence. It's like he's so excited to explain this that he just kind of repeats himself and stumbles over himself. This is why Melchizedek shows up twice. This is why there's some imagery that's kind of brought up in here kind of like quickly and maybe even where you could break down that imagery and be like, what? What's really going on here? But no, actually in the overview of it, there's an overarching truth that is correct and is pointing to these things. The author's like so just enamored with Christ being fulfilling that he just kind of spills it all out there. This is why if you're following along with us in another version besides ESV, a lot of translations make their pauses and breaks in different places because it's really kind of hard to delineate and understand where these emphases go through in the original language. Because this is long run on sentence. And I think the two things that I know at least jumped up for me that I do want to take a brief moment and at least mention the most confusing part of that long sentence probably comes in two things for me. One, who is this Melchizedek guy and why is he worth being mentioned twice? Especially when he's not really mentioned very much uh, in the Old Testament. Second thing um, that I think is important is not only who just who is this Melchizedek guy, but then also what's this whole thing about Christ needing to learn obedience, being made perfect? Does that mean he was disobedient? You need to learn obedience. That means he was imperfect, being made perfect. I think if you dive down into them too specifically, you can, you can see that, you, or I guess you could miss, if you dive down too specifically, you could miss an overarching theme again here that the author's just trying to again point back to the theme here that, that Christ is compassionate and capable and we can respond confidently and continually. And I think that's the main ideas that are presented here. Here's the main idea of Melchizedek, and some of why I'm skirting this over is because he shows up in the next chapter, so um, Chris will spend some time on, more on him in depth next week. Um, but the main idea of Melchizedek here is that uh, he represents the continual ability to uh, approach the throne. That's the main idea. Because Melchizedek, like I already mentioned, he kind of really shows up in kind of an obscure way as this king priest in the Old Testament um, that receives a tithe and a tenth, and, um, and there's a lot of grace that's involved in that story. And, uh, uh, but then it's, it really kind of just jumps into him and kind of jumps out of him in, the, in his life as it's recorded. As we really kind of get this question of where did that guy come from? He just kind of pops onto the scene. And the same way, it just kind of like, and then he's gone. What does he really do with that? And actually, David, reflecting on this, writes a psalm specifically about Melchizedek to establish that, no, it's like he, it's like he came out of nowhere, but it's not that he returned to nowhere. Instead, he is going to remain as the high priest. He's going to have a lineage that is going to be constant and be forever. And this, I think, is what is being highlighted by mentioning Melchizedek here. It's in the same way that it seems to be endless or, or without beginning. That would be the opposite of endless. It seems to be beginningless. In the story that he hops into, he then also is endless in his role and function. This is why Jesus is related to him. Because all high priests up until now lived and died. They started and they ended. Jesus is a better high priest. He didn't start. He was begotten, verse 5. He was in the same substance as God. He wasn't made. All things were made through him. He was there from the beginning. There's no beginning 
And in the same way, there's no end to his reign. This is the finality. We can constantly and continually go to the throne because Christ lives on. He is the embodiment of life. And we see that in the comparison to the fragility of death. Does that make sense? That's a Melchizedek main idea. Again, we'll get more into depth with him next chapter. Main idea about this whole obedience through suffering, to learn obedience through suffering and to be made perfect. Um, again, it is, it is abundantly clear that this is not Christ being imperfect, thus needing to be made perfect, because he's not made. He is God. He is begotten, right? He is God. So that's, that's not it there. Nor is it that he was disobedient, thus he needs to be taught obedience, right? All of us who are children or have children, we understand this, right? We will look at them and we're like, disobedient, I'm going to teach you obedience. That's the process we do. That's not a process God needed. But yet, why then is this imagery about being taught obedience or being made perfect? I think it's more about the testing, the proving of those attributes, not so much the attaining from without, but it's always from within. He's already had it. Now he's just choosing to be proven in it, to be taught in the ways of obedience as a son, to be proven as the perfect one. This, again, I think is to point us to Jesus being of greater capacity than any of us. So the main idea of learning obedience through suffering is that it highlights the capability of Christ choosing the suffrage. You know, I think that we understand this because the high priest in comparison was obligated towards that compassion, right? We know that he was compassionate, but it was because of his weakness. He was obligated to it. Christ did not have that same weakness, yet he, by his own free will, God's sovereign plan, chose to give compassion. And we get this too. We understand this, right? Especially, again, for all of y'all who have children, or you yourself may remember this moment. Um, if you have children, uh, like my, my uh, birthday um, in February, my two little girls gave me a birthday present. What does that mean? That means Jill gave me a birthday present, wrapped it up, handed it to my daughter, and she handed it to me, right? <laughs> she was just obligated. She didn't pick it out. She didn't choose that. And that's fine, and that's great, and I want her to be celebrated, and we're teaching her how to do that on her own. And one day I'll be excited when she does this without obligation, hopefully. Chooses to give me something just because she loves me or wants to honor me. That'll be a great day. I remember this actually with my, my mom, who's actually sitting back here uh, this morning. Um, the first gift I ever gave my mom without my dad just giving it to me or my older sister saying this is what we're doing for mom. First one I chose, and we didn't talk about this, but you remember? The first one I chose to give my mom was a, uh, a silicon ear. How old was I, like eight years old? You still have it. I, I, first service, I was like, I don't know if she still has it. Um, I gave her a silicon ear. Here's, here's why. That may sound really weird. And, well, it kind of is. But it's sweet. It turns sweet by the end. Um, because my mom, uh, when we were babies, one of my favorite things, you know, you, you fixate on babies and you love them and you find different things that you respond to. My mom loved us as children and loved how soft our ears were, that tactile kind of softness. So when, she was, when we were babies, she played with her ears. Sorry, mom, if I'm embarrassing you, but she would play with our ears. Well, then we stopped being babies, but she didn't stop playing with our ears. <laughs> And a lot of times it was like, just not even, she wasn't consciously thinking about it. It was just hardwired in her. And so when we would be sitting around and watching Kamish on a Saturday afternoon or something like that, 
she would just reach over and just start playing with my ear. And so here I am as an eight-year-old-ish, walked into Discovery Science Place, and I see a silicone ear, and I think, great, I'm gonna buy it, I'm gonna keep it, I'm gonna wait till my mom's birthday or Christmas or something, and I'm gonna give it to her because she can finally play with that and leave my ear alone. <laughs> and I remember when I gave it to her, my mom's a very, very stoic woman. And there's only a handful of times I've seen her cry. And I don't think, I don't think you cried. But I remember you were taken aback. And enough so that I thought, did I do this wrong? Because this is the first time I've done the gift and I've chosen it. Did I do it wrong? And it was no. It was because she was genuinely moved by me choosing it, even as silly. <laughs> and it's kind of weird and gross that a silicon ear is as a gift. I made the choice and I connected it to something about her. And I, I looked at our relationship and I made a choice into that. I wasn't obliged into it. I wasn't forced into it. I made the choice. And there was a sweetness in that choice. And this is the same thing that Christ chooses suffering for us, not because he's obliged, like our man's high priest who was obliged by his own sin, but Christ who was sinless chose suffering on his free will so that he could convey to all of us compassion in a way that we've never experienced compassion before. So I think the highlight of why we have this, it's this little mention about Christ needing to learn obedience is because through suffering is really it's more about he's, cho- he's choosing suffering to be proven in his obedience. He wants to highlight his capability by showing how compassion is about, by lowering himself. So Christ was willing to choose these things to demonstrate ultimate, ultimately his compassion with humanity, to demonstrate his capacity over all things so that we may have access to him confidently and constantly. But I also think that there's another highlight, and this is what I want to close, kind of our last little application and moving into the beginning of the uh, next exhortation with, is that Christ not only chose our suffering to demonstrate this, but Christ chose suffering because he was realizing a specific choice against sin. Bear with me a little bit as we work through this, but I think Christ, another aspect of Christ choosing suffering to be proven in obedience through suffering is that he is modeling to us. He is the prototype man. He is the first Adam. He is modeling to us the correct way to live life. This would fit into his words. I've come to give life and life abundant. So then he would make sense that he constantly and continually models that right life. And I think that we see this in relation to Christ choosing to experience the same temptations, the same trials, the same weaknesses that we have. His choice to do all of that is because he's modeling that God's way and will for his life is better than any, of it, any other choice, any other things that we could be doing on our own. Living in God's will, no matter the hardship, is better than the smallest iota of presence of sin. I think Jesus chose humanity with all its sickness and frailty because sin would be a far worse choice. I think Jesus chose to experience betrayal and rejection because it'd be better to suffer through those things than to tell a small lie and get out of it. I think Jesus chose to die on a cross because it is better to die the excruciating pain of the crucifixion than to look at another with lust or to covet your neighbor's possessions. I think Jesus chose nails driven through his hands and through his feet because it's better to have that happen than to cheat on your taxes. 
I think Jesus chose a suffering, agonizing death of suffocation with his own blood hanging on a cross to enact the Father's will and choose what is right, even in that suffering, with all that that bears, it is still better than any other choice to not be in God's will. Jesus handled sin very seriously. And he was the capable one to make the right choice. And this is the choice that he extends to all of us, for those who've believed and professed is that now he extends to us the ability through his strength and the indwellment of the Holy Spirit to choose righteousness, whereas before we were hopeless. Jesus has used lots of bold words and many times to express the seriousness of the sin when we forget the choice uh, to follow God's will, when we forget to continually go before the throne, when we forget we can have great confidence because he is capable and he is compassionate. When we forget that and we choose something different, we choose sin, um, Luke records that Jesus says uh, to us that it is better, in one instance, it is better for us to tie a millstone around our necks and be thrown into the sea than to cause a little one to stumble. In Matthew, most famously, we get that Jesus says, it's better to pull out your eye that eye's causing you to sin, pull it out, get rid of it. It's better to cut off your feet if your feet are gonna take you to sin. These are graphic, and harsh images. But there's truth. What we tend to value, and worse than that, what we tend to try to value and believe in the lies of sin is that we can somehow fulfill ourselves better if we just had our feet or if we just had our eyes even if we had our whole life. Sin is spiritual suicide. And when I thought of that phrase, I thought again of this book, and a couple weeks ago I mentioned it, um, in the last time I was preaching, The Smell of Sin, Fresh Air of Grace. Again, a small one, Don Everett's, pick it up. Um, it's, it, it is very easy to read, and he, he does a lot of, he paints a lot of images and word associations and things that are helpful for me. And when it comes to the seriousness of his sin, right before a chapter entitled, But I Like My Eyeballs, uh, he has this, a little muse that he writes, darkening sock, and let me read it for you this morning. It was a Sunday morning. I love Sunday mornings. My familiar pew, my favorite hymn, pastor's mildly, mildly entertaining third point, and the unmistakable, unique sound of sawing Quite clear from the pew behind me, it seemed, the tight rasp and rough grind of a saw. There in church, on a Sunday morning, I turned to look, and my eyes grew. A middle-aged man with receding hairline, bending over, reaching towards the floor in front of him. I looked closer, and my eyes grew more. He was working awkwardly at his right ankle with a red-handled, silver-toothed hacksaw. The cotton of his right hand dress sock began to shred and mingled with the flesh of his right ankle. Dark blood pulsed out, slowly darkening his sock and spilling thickly onto the gray all-purpose sanctuary carpet. Are you all right? He asked, quite sincere, looking up at me with my gagging face. This, I think, again, is just, a, of course, it's just an illustration, but this is not an illustration found explaining words of his own, is what Christ chose to demonstrate to us, that that's choosing sin is choosing death. So anything, even life maimed here in this world, maimed is better if you don't enter into death in the next. There's a seriousness to the weight of sin. 
And we have a confident, a capable and compassionate God who calls us to confidently go before him, consistently turning and choosing his ways rather than our own. Yeah, sometimes we forget that. And I confess, I forget that. This is why I need God's word. This is why I need the testimony of those around me. This is why I need to be serving and giving my money is because I'm frail and I constantly want to believe the lie of sin that it's not that serious. But it is. And I have no excuse to turn to it because I have a high priest who's saying confidently come. I am capable. You know, and we're not the only ones facing this problem because the ending of the chapter that we had read earlier um, starts his next exhortation. And again, and again, this encouragement comes with, a, with a finally a specific claim towards the Hebrews that I think we can relate to. Um, look down in verse 11. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing, dull of hearing. This concept of being dull of hearing This word dull is actually only used twice in scripture here and actually once other in the next chapter, chapter 6, 12. It means to be dull or sluggish or slow. Let's look at verse 11 of the next chapter to see this highlighted because we won't expound on it too much, but I think we are given the definition and the the opposite of what it means to be dull or sluggish. Verse 11 of chapter 6, and we desire each one of you to show the same earn, uh, sorry, earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish. Same word. But what? Because that's what, so if we know what sluggish is, what's the opposition to that? So you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the difference. A sluggish hearer, a dull hearer, is one who hears the truth and doesn't imitate it. One who is given the identity and chooses death. One who a high priest stands as a mediator before God, capable and compassionate and offers a gift And yet we choose to accept that gift, yet in our lives, constantly turn back to what the gift saved us from. What is it in our lives that we're still holding on to? What is it the sin that we're not treating serious enough? I think that is a good final application and one that we're gonna move into this time of invitation with. So I'm gonna invite the band to kind of come back up as we move into our time of invitation, and I do want to say first and foremost, maybe if you are sitting here this morning and if you have heard all this and have never taken that first step to ask God for the salvation he provides through his son, then today can be the day of salvation. Please don't leave without doing so. That's you and you need someone to talk to. Come forward, I'd love to talk to you. Find us after. It's a good conversation to have. For all the rest of us who have put our faith in Christ, um, I want us to pause and reflect and sing and let the Spirit do the work in our lives to show us again how we continue to want to believe the lie that sin isn't serious. We want to continue to foster and and harbor this little thing aside when Christ is calling us to participate in life and life abundant.
or maybe that this place is a place that you realize that in that process of pursuing that right life, you want to gather around with a body and maybe you've talked with Lance or met with some people and you want to come and you want to join this dysfunctional, messed up family as we all try to figure that out together. So let us do that and give diligence to figuring that out this morning. So why don't you all stand or sit, come forward, kneel, whatever it is that you need to respond. May we do so rightly as God calls us.